0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today By Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Part 3 Antagonism to God's Law Chapter 28 Autonomy and Antinomianism Autonomous reasoning may reject our endorsement of the law of God for ethics, but autonomous ethics has nothing finally to offer in its place. The theological perspective which has been advanced in these chapters has not been formulated or determined by popular opinion polls, a desire to synthesize the wise variety of human attitudes, or even by seeking a middle-of-the-road position among evangelical Bible teachers and pastors. Our aim has been to be faithful to the full range of biblical revelation concerning the validity of God's law and ethics today. We have tried to be true to the Word of God and not the traditions of men. If this effort has enjoyed any significant measure of success, that is, if we have in fact taught what Scripture teaches about God's moral standards, then it would come as no surprise that there exist a number of other positions on God's law or on the norm for ethics which stand in opposition to what has been set forth herein. Many erroneous theories of ethics are flourishing today, and always have, actually. Some are more dangerous than others, of course, but to some extent all depart from what God says about his law. The Autonomy of the Unbeliever The most stark antagonism to the law of God which we encounter will naturally be voiced by those who do not have faith in Christ and who refuse to submit their reasoning and behavior to the revealed word of God. Unbelievers do not, in principle, seek to conform to the commandments of God, and they do not, in principle, have the conviction that they are under obligation to God's law. Yet, unbelievers are never without ethical assumptions, beliefs, and attitudes. Consequently, the thoughtful unbeliever will strive to formulate a philosophy of ethics for himself, if not for others, and his ethical reasoning will be characterized as autonomous. The word autonomy derives from two Greek words, autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. To operate autonomously is to become a law unto yourself. The autonomous philosopher presumes that he can define good and evil according to his own unaided, self-sufficient powers of reasoning. He is not subject to the authority of another, especially that of God, but rather believes that he can competently exercise his own authority in moral matters. The unbeliever seeks to set aside God's law so that he can establish self-law in its place. Romans chapter one verses eighteen through thirty-two and chapter two verses twelve through twenty-six teach that nobody who has ever lived in God's creation has been unaware of the Creator's standards of conduct. All men, even those who have never heard of the Bible, hinder the truth by means of their unrighteous lives. Yet, even though they may not have been privileged to receive a written revelation of the law of God, for example, the oracles of God given to the Jews, counter-reference, chapter 2, verse 17, and verse 27, and Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Gentiles who have not the law show the work of the law written on their hearts, Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. In their innermost selves, all men know the requirements of God's law, but they seek to escape that condemning knowledge and to construct substitute theories of ethics for themselves. Quote, The natural man receives not the things of God's spirit. End quote. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And indeed the mind, controlled by the sinful nature, is not subject to the law of God, and neither can it be. Romans 8.7 By nature, the unbeliever must oppose the concept of the law of God, which this book promotes. Like Adam their father, unbelievers seek to be like God, determining for themselves what will be good and evil, setting aside God's self-attesting revelation in nature and scripture, and proceeding down the road of sinful rebellion toward the demise of ethics. Plato and Sartre Plato taught that ethics is independent of religion, for the form, or essential idea, of goodness and piety exists apart from the thinking of the gods, who approve of actions by looking above themselves to the absolute, unchanging standards for goodness and piety. Such a view rescued ethical theory, thought Plato, from both skeptical relativism, since the form of goodness was unchanging and absolute, not depending upon fluctuating human experience or opinion, and dogmatic religion, since goodness or piety did not receive their character from what the gods said about them. But by securing absolute authority for ethics in this way, Plato simultaneously lost ethical relevance, for how is anyone living through the changes of history supposed to know what this absolute standard of goodness requires in day-to-day experience? We never encounter the unchanging form of goodness in our ordinary experience, and so by observation can know nothing of it, and especially nothing of its concrete application to particular moral problems and questions. Plato had a heavenly good, which was of no earthly value. He said that men could know the good by rational intuition, but that only plunges ethics into chaotic relativism once we realize that men differ radically in what they intuit as being good or evil. In many ways, the existential philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre is quite incompatible with ancient Platonism. Both Sartre and Plato, however, sought to free ethics from the dictates of dogmatic religion. Sartre's starting point was the non existence of God, from which he inferred that there exist no fixed values whatsoever. Man is totally free to determine for himself what will constitute good and evil. There is no essential idea of goodness which precedes his decisions and stands in judgment over them. Whatever values come into one's life must be freely chosen and defined by him on his own. Unlike Platonism, then, existentialism makes ethics very relevant. Far from being unattainable, the standard of right and wrong is immediately accessible to the individual, being completely under his voluntary control. He can readily know what to do in particular ethical situations, for he himself decides what is right and wrong in each case. Of course, this ethical relevance is purchased at the extremely high price of forfeiting the absolute authority in ethics. For Sartre, every choice made by man is absurd, but every choice, providing it was genuinely a free choice, is justifiable. There are not good and bad choices, only choices. What is chosen as right by one individual in a specific situation does not govern what should be seen as right by another individual in a similar situation. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes, and consequently there is no universal binding standard of conduct which can guide and correct our living. Plato had ethical absolutes without relevant applications. Sartre had relevant applications without an ethical absolute. Both problems, ultimately destructive of ethics in their own ways, stemmed from a rejection of God's revelation of his divine law for human behavior. By contrast, the Christian ethic has absolute authority, being based on the revelation of the Lord's will. It also has relevance for what the all-knowing and all-controlling God says pertains quite specifically to our day-to-day lives and problems. God has clearly revealed unchanging standards for even the most specific aspects of living. Autonomous reasoning may reject our endorsement of the law of God for ethics, but autonomous ethics has nothing finally to offer in its place. Autonomy spells the death of an absolute and relevant ethical standard. Varieties of Antinomianism The opponents of God's law in Christian ethics are not restricted to the world of unbelieving thought, and so we must continue our survey of antagonism to the perspective advanced in these studies. Many believing Christians would likewise reject the idea that the law of God is now normative for ethics. They would in one way or another, to one degree or another, and for one reason or another, repudiate the binding authority of the revealed commandments of God. Those who do this are generally known as antinomians, because they are against, anti, the law, nomos. Although we must carefully recognize that a wide variety of different attitudes, not all sharing the same problems, fall under this label. We need to draw distinctions. Licentious antinomianism, the most serious form of antinomianism, maintains that since we have been saved by grace, apart from the works of law, we have been set free from the need to observe any moral code whatsoever. Laws or rules have no place in the Christian life, and thus, in principle, the door is open to complete license in the way a believer lives. Such thinking hardly squares with New Testament teaching. Paul not only insisted that salvation was not by works, he also went on to say that salvation is for the sake of doing good works, Ephesians 2, verses 8-10. He recognized that God's grace instructs us to live righteously in this world, Titus 2, verses 11-12. John pointedly said, sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3-4. Spiritual antinomianism would admit that the Christian needs guidance for the holy living expected by God, but it would deny that such guidance comes from a written or verbally defined code. Ethical direction is rather found in the internal promptings of the Holy Spirit. Thus, this position is against insisting upon the normativity of God's revealed law, finding such insistence as stifling of the spontaneous work of the Spirit within us. Quite expectedly, such thinking leads quickly to subjectivism in Christian ethics, which each man doing whatever he claims the Spirit has prompted him to do. Despite the fact that it conflicts with what the Spirit has prompted others to do and worse what the spirit has revealed once for all in the scriptures, the Bible teaches us that the Spirit works through the Word not speaking or directing from himself John 16 verses thirteen through fifteen The spirit works to fulfill the law in us Romans eight verses four through nine. The abiding of the spirit in believers brings obedience to God's commandments 1 john 324 Dispensational antinomianism would freely grant that God has revealed standards for living, contrary to licentious antinomianism, and revealed them in written form to be kept, contrary to spiritual antinomianism. However, it would be against the Old Testament law of God as the present-day norm of Christian conduct. This form of antinomianism is called dispensational because it stands opposed to the law of the previous dispensation, the Old Covenant law of Moses. Today we are told Christians should govern their lives by the commandments of the New Dispensation, or the New Covenant. Such a perspective suggests some rather unacceptable theological implications. For instance, that God's holy character is not reflected in the law, or that his character has changed, so that the law has changed. Moreover, this perspective surely does not comport with the widespread practice of the New Testament writers who rely unapologetically upon the presumed authority of Old Testament commandments, then again, we have the explicit endorsement of the Old Testament law in statements like Matthew 5:19, quote, "...whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven," end quote. Or in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, James 2:10, etc. One wonders also about the ethical norms of the Old Testament, which the New Testament had no occasion to repeat. Are they no longer definitive for good and evil, say the prohibition of bestiality, However, the most obvious difficulty with dispensational antinomianism is that it does not do justice to the very wording of the new covenant which it seeks to exalt. According to God's word, the new covenant would mean not the replacing of God's law or its abrogation, but rather its spiritual empowering within us. This is the new covenant, quote, I will put my law in their inward parts, End quote. Jeremiah 31, 33. Not a new law, but my law, the well-known law, revealed and known through Moses and the other Old Testament writers. Finally, we can mention latent antinomianism as an incipient brand of opposition to God's law. Latent antinomians are not explicitly antagonistic to the law. Instead, they would broadly endorse the Old Testament commandments. But at this point... They would take a smorgasbord approach to the collection of laws found in the Old Testament, accepting some and rejecting others as binding today on some other basis than specific revealed teaching. The latent antinomian is opposed to some laws in the Old Testament, and he has no biblical warrant to offer for his rejection of them. This is not an outright rejection of the category of law, nor of written law, nor of Old Testament law. It is only incipiently antinomian because, at heart, it opposes the binding authority of certain Old Testament commandments on non-biblical grounds. If the principle of this practice were carried out consistently and self-consciously, it would amount to genuine antinomianism. Latent antinomians usually want the Old Testament law, but not certain categories of it. Example, civil or not its full details. For example, case laws or penal sanctions. If those who felt this way could offer some attempted biblical justification for setting these portions of the law aside, then they might be theologically mistaken, but they would not be latently antinomian. It is the failure to let God's word govern which laws we take as binding and which laws we set aside that makes this position latently antinomian. Jesus said that man must live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth, Matthew 4.4. We cannot subtract from God's law, then, without his authorization. Deuteronomy 4.2 Over against the unbelieving attitude of autonomy, these studies have promoted theonomy, God's law. Instead of being antinomian, in either licentious, spiritual, dispensational, or latent ways, they have taken a pronomian stand. In ethics, we presume that God's law from the Old Testament remains normative for conduct until the lawgiver reveals otherwise. Self-law in opposition to God's law are both incompatible with genuine ethical theory and practice. Chapter 29 Arguments Against the Law's General Validity To insist that we are New Covenant believers or that the Mosaic Commandments must come to us through Christ is not to subtract anything from our obligation to the Old Testament law. These studies have found extensive biblical evidence for the position that God's law is fully binding for modern ethics, unless alterations have been revealed. We have seen that one must presume continuity of moral standards with the Old Testament, and this presumption holds for socio-political portions of the law as much as with personal portions of the law. Only God's word has sufficient authority to alter our obligation to previously revealed commandments from God. Some Christian teachers or writers would contend, however, that the law of God does not have a general validity in the age of the New Testament. They would attempt to marshal arguments against the conclusions to which we have been driven by our study of Scripture. In all fairness, we need to survey some of the main reasons which people offer for saying that the law of God is not generally valid in the New Covenant dispensation, asking whether such considerations genuinely disprove what we have said herein. Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 19. A passage of scripture which clearly seems to teach the presumption of moral continuity today with the Old Testament commandments is Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 19. Yet some write as though this passage says nothing of the sort. They argue, for instance, that verse 17 deals not with Christ's attitude toward the Old Testament law, but rather with Christ's life as the prophetic realization of everything in the Old Testament canon. It is true, of course, that the scope of Christ's declaration here is the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. However, there is absolutely nothing in the context of the verse or its wording which touches on the life of Christ in distinction from his teaching or on prophecy topology. The focus of attention is obviously the moral standards by which Christ would have us live, and in particular the question of the Old Testament commandments is taken up. Verse 16 speaks of our good works. Verse 17 twice denies that Christ abrogates the Old Testament revelation, in which case any interpretation which makes fulfill imply the abrogation of the law simultaneously renders the verse self-contradictory. Verse 18 speaks more specifically of the law, and in verse 19 Jesus referred back to the object of his remarks in verses 17 and 18 as these commandments verses 20 and following speak to the question of righteousness and how the Pharisees have distorted the requirements of God's commandments. It is quite evident that we find in this passage a direct statement by Jesus on the validity of the law, and what he said was that not the least commandment, not the smallest stroke of the law, had been abrogated or would pass away until the end of the spatio-temporal world. It might be suggested that the word but in Matthew 5.17 need not bespeak direct Contrast between abrogate and fulfill. However, Greek has two adversatives, and it is the stronger of the two which appears here. Jesus does not speak merely of general contrast, but of direct antithesis between abrogating and fulfilling. It might then be suggested that the negation, the not, in verse 17, need not be one of the absolute character, for elsewhere we read phrases in the New Testament which have the same form. Quote, Not this, but that. End quote. And the obvious sense is one of relative negation. For example, Not so much this as that. End quote. However, in such cases, we have something of a paradoxical introductory formula where something is affirmed and then denied, only then to have the contradiction resolved by the relative negation. For example, Quote, Whoever receives me does not receive me, but even more the one who sent me, End quote. Mark chapter 9 verse 37. This is not what we find in Matthew 17. Instead of something being affirmed and then denied, we have something denied twice in a row. Quote, think not that I came to abrogate the law or the prophets. I came not to abrogate, End quote. This is not a paradoxical introduction, but a downright emphatic denial of something. Matthew five seventeen, along with the vast majority of instances of not this but that statements in Matthew's gospel, expresses strong contrast or antithesis, not relative negation. Others who oppose the general validity of the law in the New Testament might hope to come to terms with Matthew chapter five verses seventeen through nineteen by arguing that the subordinate clause until all comes to pass in verse eighteen limits the validity of the law to the obedient ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. To do so, they have to read a great deal into a very colorless phrase with little distinctive character. The phrase in Greek says little more than until everything happens. The structure of the verse seems to make this phrase parallel to one which went before, one which specifically stated until heaven and earth pass away. The interpretation before us, then, would make the verse self-contradictory by saying that the law was both valid until the end of the world and valid until Jesus had kept it all, in which case it is now both set aside and not set aside. Besides, this interpretation takes all in the phrase until all things happen, as referring to all the jots and tittles of the law mentioned in verse 18. But this is grammatically incorrect, seeing that all and jot and tittle do not agree in gender or number according to the Greek text. There appears to be no escape from the thrust of Matthew 5:17 through 19 We must presume a general validity for the Old Testament law today. Even if someone wants to point out quite correctly that the teaching here must be qualified by New Testament revelation elsewhere, our point would remain. Our presumption is that the Old Testament law is binding until the New Testament teaches us otherwise. If a commandment is not altered or set aside by the New Testament, we must assume an obligation to keep it. Alleged Dismissals of the Law in the New Testament Although it overlooks the extensive positive evidence which has been presented in this introductory book and in my more comprehensive treatment, Theonomy in Christian Ethics, 2nd edition, 1984, one procedure for arguing against the general validity of the law is to point to isolated New Testament passages which appear to dismiss the Old Testament law for today. The treatment given such verses elsewhere in this book demonstrate that such passages— do not in fact contradict the general validity of the law. At least, they can be understood legitimately in a non-contradictory fashion. Those who insist on reading them in another way, so that they conflict with clear endorsements of the law's validity in the New Testament, create a theological tension where one need not exist. Acts 15 A few New Testament passages seem to appear quite often in the polemics of those who oppose the law's general validity today. Acts 15 is commonly cited, as though the Apostolic Council's decree were intended to delineate precisely those laws and only those laws which remained valid from the Old Testament. But such a view is incredible. According to it, since the Council did not forbid blasphemy and stealing, such behavior would be condoned today, the prohibition of these things not carrying over into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 and 21 in 1 Corinthians nine twenty and 21, Paul says that he was not under the law and could behave as one without law. However, these remarks come in the context of saying that he behaved one way among the Jews and behaved another way among the Gentiles. The difference here was surely not one which pertained to moral matters, as though Paul was a thief among some people but not a thief among others. But it had to be a difference pertaining to laws which separated Jews and Gentiles. Thus, Paul would be speaking here of the ceremonial laws, which created a middle wall of partition. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13-16 through 16. In order to minister to all men, Paul observed such laws among the Jews, but disregarded them among the Gentiles. All the while, he declares, He was not without the law to God, but under law to Christ. Obviously, then, Paul is not dismissing the law of God. He kept the law under the authority of Christ and Christ himself. We know from elsewhere, for example, Matthew 5, 17-19, taught that every least commandment of the Old Testament was binding today. Galatians chapters 3 and 4 In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul speaks of a historical epoch, wherein the law served as a prison master and as a tutor until the object of faith, Jesus Christ, came and made believers mature sons who no longer need such a tutor. Some people have seized such metaphors and statements and jumped to the hasty conclusion that the entire law of God, which Paul called holy, righteous, and good in Romans seven twelve, is nothing but weak and beggarly rudiments, Galatians four nine, which have now passed away. However, a better reading of Galatians will pay attention to the historical context. Galatians is a polemic against Judaizers who insisted on keeping of the ceremonial law as a way of justification. Acts 15, verses 1 and 5, and Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. The portion of the Old Testament law, which Paul speaks of in Galatians three twenty three through four ten, was a tutor unto Christ, which taught that we should be justified by faith, verse 24. The moral law, for example, you shall not steal, does not serve this function. It shows us God's righteous demand, but it does not indicate the way of gracious salvation for those who violate the demand. On the other hand, the ceremonial law was indeed an instructor in salvation by grace, typifying the redemptive work of Christ. Now that the object of faith has come, however, we are no longer under this tutor. Verse 25. We are mature sons who enjoy the reality which was previously only foreshadowed. When we were but children, we were under the rudiments, the weak and beggarly rudiments. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 9. Paul spoke in Colossians 2, 16-23 of rudiments and ordinances, explaining that they were but a shadow of the things to come, but the body is Christ's. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Paul was speaking of the ceremonial law which foreshadowed the work of the Redeemer, but which was weak and impoverished in comparison to the reality brought in by Christ. If this is not evident enough from the historical context, Judaizing insistence on circumcision, From the very vocabulary chosen by Paul, rudiments, and from the function assigned to the specific law which Paul had in mind, pointing instructively to Christ and to justification by faith, it should be obvious from the example which he immediately offered at the end of our passage. In Galatians 4.10, Paul specifies what he means by the illustration of observing the ceremonial calendar. Galatians dismisses the shadows of the ceremonial law, but it endorses the continuing demand of the moral law of the Old Testament, as we see in Galatians chapter 5 verses 13 through14 and 23b, where love and the fruit of the spirit are demanded in order to conform to the law. Hebrews 7 verses 11 through25. Another passage to which appeal is commonly made by those who oppose the law's general validity today is Hebrews 7:11 through25 for it speaks in verse 12 of a necessary change of the law. If we consult the passage carefully, however, it will be clear that the change which is in mind here is a particular or singular change pertaining to a requirement for the priesthood. The priesthood has been changed from the Levitical order to the order of Melchizedek, in verses 11 and 12, which obviously points to the fact that the priests spoken of in Hebrews need not come from the particular tribe of Levi, chosen in the Mosaic law to serve the altar, verses 13 and 14. Instead, the great high priest Jesus Christ came in the likeness of Melchizedek, quote, not according to the law of a fleshly requirement, namely Levitical family origin. End quote. So that there has been a setting aside of foregoing commandment in order that a better hope promised in Psalm one ten verse four might be realized. This is in verses fifteen through twenty one. This singular change in the law is first one which pertains to the ceremonial law and thus it does not contradict the general validity of the Old Testament law as presented in this book. Second, this change is said to be a necessary change arising from its ceremonial character and from the scriptural teaching that the final high priest would come after the order of Melchizedek. This kind of necessity does not prove that any other law of God has been changed unless it too is ceremonial in nature and dictated by the word of God himself. Consequently, Hebrews 7 does not stand in opposition to the presumption that the Old Testament law is binding today until God's word teaches us otherwise. Theological Considerations About Revelation and the Covenant If we turn now from arguments against the law's general validity, which arise from consideration of specific passages of Scripture, we come to a variety of theological considerations which are meant to militate against the perspective which has been taken in these studies. There are some who would betray misconceptions of what our position is by saying that we need to pay corrective attention to the progress of revelation pertaining to redemptive history. The difficulty is that our position has been formulated by studying what the New Testament says about the Old Testament law, along with what the whole Bible reveals about the character of ethical norms. Consequently, we have been very mindful of progressive revelation, which has brought us to the conviction that Old Testament commandments must be taken as binding until changes are declared by the word of God itself. Those who vaguely appeal to progressive revelation as supposedly a sufficient refutation of the position taken in these studies seem to have confused progressive revelation about God's law with ethical evolution of God's standards themselves. Another theological consideration which has been advanced in the debate over the general validity of God's law is the observation that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, the apex of God's revelatory work, and the Lord of our lives, in which case we must listen to him and pattern our lives after his life if we are going to have a Christian ethic. Of course, there is nothing we need to contradict in such observations. Our obligation is indeed to the word and example of Jesus Christ. The question that remains, however, is whether Christ, by his word and example, taught us to honor the authority of the Old Testament commandments. Since he did, as abundant evidence demonstrates, then the suggestion that we should follow Jesus and not Moses is a misleading and false antithesis. Since the New Testament endorses the moral standards of the Old Testament, we are not forced to choose between an Old Testament ethic and a New Testament ethic. We are to follow them both, for they constitute one unified moral standard. Is it true, as some claim, that since we live under the New Covenant today, we should formulate our Christian ethic on the basis of the New Testament scriptures exclusively, seeing the standards of the Old Covenant as obsolete? If we pay attention to the very terms of the New Covenant, our answer must be no. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three stipulated that when God made a New Covenant, he would write his law on the hearts of his people, not that he would abrogate his law, replace his law, or give a new law. Consequently, to live in submission to the new covenant is to rejoice in the law of the old covenant, for it is written upon our hearts, out of which are the issues of life. Promises and Demands Those who suggest that the establishment of the new covenant nullifies the general validity of the Old Testament law appear to have confused the sense in which the old has become obsolete, Hebrews 8.13, and the sense in which it continues the same, Hebrews 10.16. All of God's covenants are unified. They make the same moral demands and focus upon the same promises. However, the promises call for historical fulfillment, the change from anticipation to realization, in a way which the demands do not. There is a difference in perspective between Old and New Covenants regarding the promises of God, while the moral standards of both are absolute and unchanging. Thus, the Old Covenant administration, sacrifices, covenant signs, temple, can be set aside for the New Covenant realities even though the Old Covenant moral law remains fundamentally the same. Historical events are crucial regarding the promises, whereas they are irrelevant to the demands. Indeed, the need we had for Christ to come and historically fulfill God's redemptive promises arises precisely because God's just standards cannot be set aside. Hebrews specifically teaches that the New Covenant is a better covenant because it is enacted on better promises, Hebrews 8.6, not a better law. Rather, the Old Covenant's law is written on the heart of the New Covenant believer. Verse 10 Therefore we live under the realized promises, the fulfilled realities of the New Covenant, not the Old testament shadows of redemption. And yet we live under the same essential covenant as did the Old Testament saints, because all of God's covenants are one. They constitute the covenants of the promise. Ephesians 2.12 Progressive outworkings of the one promise of salvation. Within these Old Covenant administrations, the law was not against the promises of God. Galatians 3.21 This very same law is written on the heart in the New Covenant's fulfillment of the promises. Hebrews 8.6-12 Therefore, the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of the New Covenant and that His example is the model for Christian ethics and the fact that New Covenant is the administration of God's single promise under which we are now privileged to live do not imply in any logical or biblical way that the moral standards of the old testament have been laid aside as invalid today to insist that we are new covenant believers or that the mosaic commandments must come to us through christ is not subtract anything from our obligation to the old testament law as interpreted and qualified by the advanced revelation of the new testament remarks relevant to the law's categories Finally, we can survey a few popular arguments against the general validity of the Old Testament law, all of which relate to the categories commonly recognized by theologians, namely moral law, judicial law, ceremonial law. First, there is the argument that the Bible never speaks of such categories, in which case the law must be viewed as an indivisible whole. If the law has been laid aside in any sense, then accordingly the whole law has been laid aside, it is thought. Such thinking is simplistic and fallacious. To begin with, the Bible can often be correctly summarized in ways which are not actually spoken of in the Bible itself. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so the convenient categorization of the law is not unacceptable in advance. It all depends on whether the categories and their implications are true to scriptural teaching. Secondly, there is a sense in which the law stands together as a unit. Indeed, the Bible does not carefully classify laws for us according to some explicit scheme. We should bear this fact in mind if our temptation is a priori to ignore a whole segment of the Old Testament law as nullified in virtue of our own classification schemes. Commandments cannot be easily pigeonholed for dismissal. Thirdly, biblical teaching does nevertheless demand our recognition of a fundamental difference between moral laws and cultic symbolic redemptive laws. God implied that category differentiation when he declared, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6 The differentiation is also clear from the New Testament's different handling of Old Testament commands. Some are reinforced as our duty, while others are laid aside as outmoded shadows. Some laws in the Old Testament had a redemptive purpose, looking forward to the work of the Savior, for example, the sacrificial and priestly codes. But it would be erroneous to assert that all laws, for example, you shall not steal, had that character or aim. Thus, we should not repudiate the notion that there is a ceremonial division within the law, perhaps better called restorative laws. Moreover, the ceremonial laws, which in their very nature or purpose imposed a separation between Jews and Gentiles, were designated by Paul. The law of commandments contained in ordinances, Ephesians 2.15, Colossians two fourteen and verse 17, for ordinances. He recognized a system of laws in ordinances, a special category of commandment, which had been abolished by Christ's redemptive works. The Case Laws Another category-related argument against the general validity of the Old Testament law today maintains that the applications and illustrations of the Decalogue, which we find in the Case Laws, or judicial laws of the Old Testament are not perpetually binding. Some people say this and mean no more than the obvious truth that the cultural examples and applications of God's standards will be different between ancient Israel and modern America. However, others seem to be claiming something further, namely that the principles revealed illustratively in the case laws of the Old Testament must be flexibly reapplied today in a new way, in a way which is personal or geared to the new church form of God's kingdom and that their current application must be restricted to these domains alone. This latter view is erroneous. Consider the following example. Keeping the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, once meant, among other things, not being careless where human life could be endangered. For example, chopping with an axe that had a loose head. To say that this defining specification of the sixth commandment means is no longer applicable that is, to say that carelessness, when life is endangered, is now morally acceptable, for example, one may legitimately drive with poor brakes, is in fact to alter the very meaning and requirement of the sixth commandment. It is to tamper with what God intends by his commandments. If we change God's case law, explanations, and applications, the principles they illustrate or teach, then we will have to answer for tampering with the intended meaning of his word. To say that the Sixth Commandment is perpetually binding, but not the related judicial or case laws, is to render, you shall not kill, an arbitrary label which covered one kind of conduct in the Old Testament, but is pasted over a different kind of conduct in the New. Since the case laws principles define the Decalogue, the case laws principles, in their full scope, personal and social, ecclesiastical and civil, are as perpetual as the Decalogue itself. Thus, the New Testament practice, which we have previously observed, is to cite the case laws of the Old Testament as readily as, and right along with, the Ten Commandments. For example, Christ's list of moral duties rehearsed for the rich young ruler in Mark 10.19 includes, you shall not defraud, right along with the Decalogue. Conclusion We have examined specific New Testament texts and reflected upon various theological themes but in none of them have we have yet to find any convincing evidence which runs counter to the perspective formulated in this book. There may be isolated Bible verses that, when read out of literary theological context, give a passing impression that the law no longer binds our behavior. Upon closer look, however, not a single New Testament text says that the standards of conduct taught in the Old Testament law are now immoral, outdated, or incorrect in the way they define godliness. We know that the law is good, said Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. In a similar fashion, there may be certain concepts or theological considerations that initially suggest a passing away of the law of the Old Covenant. When correctly understood and biblically analyzed, however, none of these theological themes logically implies the repeal of the moral standards of the Old Covenant. If they did, we could have no principled objection to situationism or cultural relativism. We would forfeit the objective, absolute, universal authority of biblical morality. Paul's presupposition was clear. Quote, Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks to them who are under the law in order that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. End quote. Romans 3.19 Cogan arguments against the goodness and universal validity of the moral standards taught in the Old Testament law have simply not been found. Critics have failed to offer us a non-arbitrary, scripturally grounded, unambiguous principle by which they may altogether disregard the Old Testament's definition of good and bad behavior or attitudes, or, even tougher, by which they can distinguish between valid and invalid portions of the Old Testament moral instruction. The general validity of God's law for our day, apart from particular biblically based qualifications on it, cannot successfully be evaded.